Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Kansas City Food Memories, which is live streamed currently on Facebook Live. If you happen to catch this on the podcast, you um, just know that in the future, if we are not on the radio because we are preempted by Missouri football, we will do a live presentation of the show here at the bakery. Best regards, Bakery and Cafe. Once again, this is Robert Dunsing, and thank you for watching today's live stream. This show is normally live every Saturday at 98.1 FM. Every Saturday at 10 a.m. It's also saved as a podcast on all platforms. Please just search for Kansas City Food Memories and you'll be able to find us. My mission is to take us all on a stroll down memory lane and talk about the good old days. I want to talk about our favorite stories about the favorite restaurants, food, people, and places. And today we're going to combine two of those, food and people. This show is made possible because of your support of Kansas of Best Regards Bakery and Cafe. My wife Sherry and I absolutely love Kansas City and view this as an extension of our bakery and cafe. This is who we are. My number one topic on the show, if you've been listening, has always been fried chicken. And it's but in the top five is also questions having to do with Gilbert Robinson. There are many uh, different restaurants that they started here in Kansas City. And I've struggled with how to start this topic. And so, like everything I do, I'm stopping right smack in the middle of it. And today, my guest is Richard McPeak, first corporate chef. Uh, probably fifth. Fifth corporate yep. chef. But you were the first executive chef and trainer, is what I read online, yes. for the Gilbert Robinson companies. So what did that mean? Well, um, after I graduated from the culinary, ironically, my chef instructor, Dan Durick, was the vice president of Gilbert Robinson then, so he hired me. Um, so one of my main jobs was to help develop concepts. So uh, I helped uh, Bill Cardwell and I, John Benton, we developed the Bristol concept. Plaza 3 to Steakhouse. I was the chef of Plaza 3 in the late 70s. Uh, I designed a fedora concept, so my main job was coming up with concepts and going in and training the chefs and training the crews and okay. turning it over and hopefully leaving successfully. So, uh, were you there yet when Annie Santa Fe started, or was that started before you got there? There was the Plaza Annie's when I came to Gilbert Robinson, okay. but then I opened the other five. Did you hear the story of where they got the name on that? Uh, there's all kinds of stories floating out there, but <laughs> was was uh, was the story involving the the picture of the naked lady lady that yeah. ran the bordello? Is that true, Annie? Annie, Annie Chambers? That was still <laughs> hanging when it closed. That that was about a twenty two foot high photo. Oh, was it really? Oh yeah, it was a huge. When you walked in the plaza, it it ran the whole twenty foot wall leading into. Where's, where's that artwork now? I you know I don't know. I would assume uh, it's in a warehouse somewhere. I See, that's one of the it. great mysteries, Kansas City. One of the two. Everybody wants to know what happened to the elevators from EBT, and where's the naked lady picture from Annie Santa Fe on the plaza? I know it went into a warehouse. Where it went from oh. there, I don't know. <laughs> Paul Robinson had three warehouses. That's all he did was travel the world. That's where and, all, and the, collecting things. all the Hulahan's artifacts came from Paul and his wife just traveling all over. Well, it, it's funny how... So many institutions in town are tied to Gilbert Robinson. I, one of the restaurants I want to do a story on is Golden Ox. And so I got a hold of a gentleman that um, managed the, he was the assistant manager for a while. And he only worked there, I think, for maybe two years. And, and he worked there for about six months and it went well. And then he, um, he said that Paul Robinson left to go start Gilbert Robinson. And he was, he's still mad about that to this day because he took two of his best employees with him. Yeah. And I asked him, I said, well, how long did you run the Golden Ox? He goes, oh, for just, just a year. I said, well, I think it's time to let go of that anger. Oh, yeah. An XGR executive, Steve Greer, uh, bought oh, yeah. the Golden yep. Ox and resurrected it. Yep. And um, my goal is to have him on the show, but he travels a lot. Yeah. He travels the world. So do you, do you know him? Oh, yeah. We open a lot of restaurants okay. together. Okay, when he gets back in town, will you get a hold of him for me? Yeah, I'll reach out to him. Because um, I met him at the uh, Restaurant Association, and he said he'd be glad to come onto the show and talk about it. Yeah, there's like I said when I walked in, there's not many not many people left from Gilbert Robinson. From back, tell, in, back in the early the days. Stories. There's still, yeah. I've run into servers, and people come to my class, they go, yeah, I was a server at Bristol when you were there. Yeah. Well, um, most of the shows that I do, I try not to do very much research because I want the, the discussion to be more organic and just kind of see where it leads, uh, follow the rabbit trails. But Gilbert Robinson is such a big story. But one of the things that I was most shocked at, because people here in Kansas City, we view the Gilbert Robinson story as strictly Kansas City. 
But I was shocked to see that in the early days, how many of the restaurants started in St. Louis and here simultaneously. Yeah. Um, Why is that? Usually it's, uh, I'm sure that had to do a lot with Paul Robinson because he was good friends with Lou Chiodini, who was a uh, architect. He okay. designed all our restaurants and he was from St. Louis. So oh, okay. That's the only connection, but... Most of the restaurants Gilbert Robinson did in St. Louis were actually in Creve Core in the suburbs. Right. Baldwin, yeah. Creve Core. And so I kind of think that has a lot to do with Lou Cadini architectural firm. Okay. Well, you know, just like uh, St. Louis refuses to give any credit to Chicago, you know, because <laughs> the insecurity there, I think uh, we refuse to give any credit to St. Louis. But um, I th- is it fair to say that St. Louis played a significant role in the early days of Gilbert Robinson? Yeah, because a lot of their concepts uh, originated there, like Lucille's, okay. uh, Sam Wilson's. There right. were two there. Well, uh, like the, um, when I was doing my research on Sam Wilson's, that the the very first Sam Wilson's was in 71. And yep. then the one here at um, Sam Wilson's Meat Market didn't open in Overland Park until the year later. Yeah, I, I believe we ended up with five Sam Wilson's okay. in Kansas City, 103rd, 95th in Antioch, uh, out in Independence. Um, so was it really a meat market and butcher shop as well as a place to eat? When it originally started, uh, it went away. Sam Wilson, the most famous thing that Sam Wilson's famous for, to this day I still get requests. Salabar? Salabar Yeah, items. I was going to say that. The, the cheese and pea salad is like one of... Everybody's like, you got the cheese and pea salad? And I'm like, that was my grandma's recipe. <laughs> yeah, my grandma makes that. Or I think it's my grandma makes that. At, or my mo- mother-in-law makes that. And she yeah. asked, that's my favorite thing to eat when we go to family function. She goes, it's, it's nothing to it. It's like sour cream and mayonnaise. Yeah, I do a fried chicken class. I, that's why I joked when you said fried chicken. I yeah. do a cast iron skillet, and I bring back the Sam Wilson's recipes. And the starter for that class is the, I call it grandma's oh. pea and cheese salad. Well, we've had several shows on that. I think the very first show that I did on dedicated 100% fried chicken was John Francis over in Overland Park. That the, They had the franchise for chicken in the rough. Yep. And it's, um, I don't know if you've talked to anybody over there or if you heard that show, but the most interesting thing about that was that because of this franchise, they had a fryer, like a four-foot-long um, fryer made for them that was deep on one end and gradually went shallow on the right end. So they could fry everything at the same time. But, you know, like the, the, the legs and the thighs, you obviously don't want that buried deeply in the oil so that it deep fries. You want to pan fry it. But it's... It, it's I had John Francis. He was the grandson. So mm-hmm. his dad and his father started the restaurant. He worked at it from when he was seven to, I think, mid-20s. But he said he, he wishes he could find out where one of those fryers were. He said they all went to auction when they closed. Oh, yeah. Uh, some of that stuff always goes. It's kind of like someone asked me about a buffalo chopper. I said, oh. I don't think you're going to find a buffalo chopper Oh, you, you got to look. I have yeah. a... You I'm, can find them, but yeah. they're, most people don't realize it's just a huge Robocu. Yeah. But so I remember like 20 some years ago when we started doing chocolates, I needed a um, uh, one of those vibrating tables for, you know, chocolates uh-huh. for chocolate molds. Those things are expensive. And so I found an old antique paper jogger that basically did the exact same thing, except it was cast iron, weighed about 90 pounds. And it was all it did was it was designed for jogging the paper so that when it came off the printing machine, they could uh, make a perfect stack. Sometimes you got to improvise. I tell my college students uh, i teach up at kansas city community college sometimes we just do everything without electricity oh and they got to do it by hand they look at me and i go when i was your age we didn't have electricity (laughs) then they look at me like you're not that old are you yeah yeah you actually use that line when i was your age yeah (laughs) yeah always do (laughs) yeah so that you know the paper jogger so i was looking at that it's like all right i could spend fourteen thousand dollars for the stainless steel version or i can spend two hundred dollars for this out of some guy's barn i still have it in the back it's one of those things you you always uh, you want to remember your roots. All right, so um, I need to, um, if you have any questions out there, if you're watching this, go ahead and post your question on Facebook. I have two people here assisting me. I have uh, Today I have Richard McPeak, former corporate chef and trainer for Gilbert Robinson Companies. So let's jump into this. So the, the salad, the salads at Sam Wilson's was really popular. And somebody asked me about a specific dressing from Sam Wilson's. Um, what was that? The cheddar dressing. Oh. What, what is that? What made that so special? That was very similar to the uh, 
blue cheese. All we really did was develop a blue cheese dressing. And because we had that, that dressing actually started because on Sam Wilson salad bars, one of the second most famous thing is what's that? big 50 pound block of cheese that you got to just shave okay. your own so we would get a lot of crumbles around that now you can't do that today but in the old <laughs> days we saved all those crumbles that went into the cheddar but it was basically a blue cheese dressing that instead of blue cheese we put cheddar in well you know that's interesting why isn't there like a blue cheese dressing or i mean a, a, a cheddar cheese dressing is it cheddar cheese just too mild to do that yeah i i don't know did they have a unique Maybe we taste to bottle it? one because yeah. I, you yeah you go down to things uh, it it had very pronounced uh, flavor we that was all aged cheddar one of the problems with aged cheddar is it it will it will not hold up to processing right it crumbles and so what complementary um, herb or seasoning did you have to pair with that that was just you know pepper was one of the main That's things it. yep okay. Sam Wilson's was one of the greatest salt and pepper restaurants. Okay. Ever so, what made their salad bar so amazing? Is, is it simply it was the first? Huge. Was it was it pretty good sized? Oh yeah, it was huge. It, it would be it would be in comparison to a grocery store salad. Oh bar. really? Oh yeah, it was huge. Okay. Plus, Sam Wilson was a famous when you came in. We had the little the popcorn wagon, so everybody got to eat free pop. There, there's always popcorn all over the restaurant. Yeah, yeah. Why, why fight it, right? Yeah. Well, you know, I. W- a lot of a lot of us miss the good old days of the salad bars. I don't know that they're going to come back, you know, after COVID and everything no. else. No, I, mean, I, the, the I old, doubt it. I know a lot of the casinos have taken all their buffets and yeah, shut them down. Yeah, so. I think the grocery stores are trying to bring it back. I don't know that's really catching on, but remember Sweet Tomatoes over on College Boulevard? That was fantastic. Yep. The uh, Soup Exchange over by Oak Park Mall? That was unbelievable. Those, uh, I'm pretty sure Ken Hill ventured into those when he left. Gilbert Robinson. Oh, really? I'm, okay. Yeah, TJ Cinnamons, and I'm pretty sure he was involved with the sweet tomato and the, the soup exchange. Yeah. Well, you know, I, l- I love how the food industry, especially, you get a lot of um, second, third, you know, they talk about coaching trees and football. Oh, yeah. You know, you know, and Andy Reid, you know, what his coaching tree looks like. I tell people in my classes that there's, there's a, you know, during the late 60s, 70s, 80s, Gilbert Robinson was the most powerful restaurant yeah. company. And there's not anybody who's successful, I think, in restaurants in Kansas City. They, they came from the arm of GR. Sure. Well, I think all the successful national chains learned from them. Oh, yeah. Houston's, Applebee's. Yeah. Because what, what I think Gilbert Robinson did was they tried to find what exactly the ingredients were of a family-owned restaurant that people loved and tried to systematize it and turn it into uh, multiple units. Yeah, and it was, it was strict. It was strict how the Houlihan's wood floors and stuff were done with paul yeah they had one person out of denver they were artists and stuff but uh yeah it's it's kind of amazing how that all generated so how many restaurants here in town are that you can think of off off the top of your head had something to do with offshoots of gilbert robinson either the chefs the people oh it's got to be well over 40 50 at one time any what are some names of restaurants that we may Recognize well all the PB and J people. They okay. they were uh, Paul Corey opened Fedora with me in 1984. Okay. Bill Crooks was a bartender at Bristol. Forbes Cross. All right, so the PB and J concepts for the people that don't know what restaurants would that be? Uh, they they had Grand Street. They had Yaya's. Those were those were their two main ones as they okay. spun off. Now I know they they sold those when they left to. I think they sold them most. They had uh, Pablo and Bills. Sure. They sold them all to the chefs and managers uh, and kind of turned that loose, and then they both kind of went their separate ways. Okay. Um, what What else besides, uh, besides oh, them? Oh, I, I would have to sit and write that down. There, okay. There's, uh, well, listeners out there. There's I, quite a few of them. Yeah, Jared, do we call them listeners or viewers when you're live streaming? Viewers. All right. So for the viewers out there, if you can think of some of the other restaurants that were offshoots of that, that we can trace back to the Gilbert Robinson tree. I like be to say Applebee's, but those people get mad. When it, Applebee's <laughs> started with someone who wanted a, a Fred Piazza. I'm talking corporate. Oh, wise. sure. Yeah. Well, I uh, think that's fair. 54th Street. Those were uh, those started. The first one started as a Ott's franchise. Okay. Well, you know, one of the stories that I've heard before is that McDonald's, the success that they had, uh, can be indirectly attributed to smacks here in Kansas City. That's what people say. I don't. I don't know that yeah. for sure. Well, but well I'd, 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 
Yeah. I don't want to go into the details you, on the show. You would know better than I would. Well, I, I don't want to get sued by some advertising agency that's still here in Kansas City. Oh, yeah. But the Happy Meal existed at Smacks yeah. for years before McDonald's came up with hey, it. Hey, I, I grew up, I started in big boy restaurants okay. when I was 15. And I tell everybody today, McDonald's didn't invent the triple decker. No. Bob, Bob, Bob's big boy did out in oh, California. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's, it's uh, he's admitted that Ray Kroc, you know, that he didn't invent the hamburger; he just perfected the systems that that people use to create a consistent product across the board. You know, that's where that saying came from. That's just a crock. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you just made that, that up, didn't you? No, that's a restaurant joke. Okay, everybody always jokes about it. All right, so um, I have a couple questions on here. What happened to June, who is the hostess? Uh, as far as I know, you know, I just asked that question the other day. I'm pretty sure she's still alive. Okay. She's friends of Carolyn Casey, who I'm, I made a note to reach out to and find out. Uh, June was the face of Plaza 3. June was the face of the Plaza uh, for a long time, man. She started at Plaza 3 when it opened. She was there through the Biba years. Okay. But I'm pretty sure she's still around. All right. I will, I will, I'm going to hunt that down because I have a thing every year. I write a list of people I want to get re-in-touched with. Okay. Then do you remember Fred Hagewood? Haywood? He was uh, Mr. Gilbert's executive chef back in the 70s. Now, it would have probably been about before my time. Okay. So, been been before yeah. that. Okay. And then... Um, I joined Gilbert Robinson out of school in uh, 78. All right. So it's we're going to be talking about some of the products and recipes and things like that as part of it because it's I I create we have a lot of dishes on every recipe we use I created one at a time over the last twenty three years and so I've asked when I did the very first show I told people I said I want to learn the recipe for Annie's sauce at Santa Fe Annie's or Annie Santa Fe I think is the correct way of saying that and then the other one I want to do is steak soup. From, yep. from Plaza 3. And and I get all these people say, well, I've got the recipe. It was published you know, in the book and this. And I try to explain to people that the printed recipe that you see is maybe 30% what you need to do to create that amazing dish. If that much. Yeah, if that much. Yeah, all the, all the even the postcard. People say, well, I got the postcard from Plaza 3. I said, that's not the real recipe. No. That's, a, no. that's a PR recipe. Yeah. yeah you know what? I, I, would, I, I would agree. I'd say on the steak soup specifically, it's probably maybe 20% of it. Because it's because when the, if you have a printed recipe and it says ground beef to make the Plaza Three steak soup, if you go to the local grocery store and just buy two pounds of ground beef, you're not going to come close to making that nope, soup. Are you? Won't have the flavor. Won't have the flavor. Yep. And so you and I talked off air, and I'm not going to give out. We won't have that specific discussion on air. We'll let them figure that on their own. You know what was amazing about GR? I came in the late late mid 70s, but we. We learned the history. It was just Joe Gilbert, who I was good friends with. You know, he would come in and he would just tell me stories. And I just, you know, everybody jokes today that I'm the gatekeeper of all Gilbert Robinson recipes. So so they told you the story of the recipes, things like that? It, we, it almost seemed like it was part of your training. Yeah. If you worked at Plaza 3, you had to understand the history. That, that's interesting because when I talk to customers here at Best Regards, somebody will come to me and at, I love this dish. Why, why do I like this dish? And I'll tell them the whole story of how I created it, what way it used to be done, what I'm doing a little bit different, and why my version of a cookie or a dressing or a sandwich or something like that is better than what their grandma used to make. Yep. And there's, it, it's not accidental. You know, there, there's, there's definitely a system to it. Yep. There was three key ingredients to that soup. You want to know what they were? Sure. So first off, the German chef who did the original Plaza 3, it was trim because he cut all his own steaks. And he came, I'm pretty sure he came from the top of the tower, okay. which was some of the first Gilbert Robinson restaurants. Right. Uh, actually, I have one of the menus from there. You'd be amazed to look at the prices. Um, so it was steak trim. Uh, during the mid-70s, it turned. they took the steak trim because they weren't producing enough. You can't scale that up, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it went to, of course, chili grind. So that's one of the, if you're going to do the ground beef, it's not ground beef. You should use chuck uh, sirloin. Um, we took it back in the 80s to steak trim because we started cutting uh, our own steaks again. Uh, then I told you the base. So it's not made with beef stock. Like the recipe says, right. it's made with it's made with water, and the base was from Lady Baltimore, 
and it was a special Which nugget. Is no longer available. Yeah, nugget yeah. brand called Green Label, and yeah. if you didn't use that in the soup, you would lose your job. <laughs> and the third one is the ingredient I hate the most. There was a ton of MSG in that yeah. soup. Yeah. And, and when we took the MSG out in the mid-80s, it took me three months to rewrite that recipe just to get it back to the flavor. Do you still use that in your recipes or cooking no, now? No, I, I don't allow MSG. I, I removed MSG from all Gilbert Robinson restaurants yeah. in the mid-80s. At yeah. school, you, you don't find I, I yeah. still come across a recipe will say aromat. My students will say, what's aromat? And I go, oops. Yeah. Well, you know what's interesting is that there was in the 80s and 90s, there was a hysteria about msg well i grew up and at, at my home we had a little drug called accent yeah which is just msg and what's really interesting is that here in america we get obsessed with a tag or a label and we say that's horrible we're going to stay away from it and it becomes a superstition you know that all these illnesses and things that you get which may be true but when i tell people they say well do you use msg and i do not and they'll say well i don't because i'll get these migraine headaches and every time i go to a certain restaurant i get a headache so i know they're using msg and i'll ask him i said do you eat any processed food from the middle of a grocery store canned soup stew any of those things they goes well yeah but and they'll say i read the labels that doesn't say msg but that's okay but if you look at those labels if it says hydrolyzed soy protein hydrolyzed corn protein you know what that is they go no i said that is the specific active ingredient in msg that they simply derive from other plants Yep. And it's the exact same thing. And so when you eat processed foods, you know, if you buy chicken stock, you know, in the little cubes, if you buy bouillon in the little cubes, you buy all that processed food comes in cans, they're doing all those, employing all those chemical tricks that are way worse than that MSG that you try to avoid because they, they're drooling down to find on the molecular level what, what causes those reactions, you know, in the human brain, you know, to, to get addicted to those foods. So yeah, I, I removed it from everything. Yeah. My wife is sensitive to it, but I do the same thing. I talk about labels. So when someone says MSG free, yeah. that means they're not putting MSG in. But yeah. if they, you know, if you buy a standard ketchup, yeah. most of them have MSG. So if yeah. you make a barbecue sauce yeah. and you say it's MSG, yeah. but you've used the ketchup yeah. with it, so so yeah, it's even worse. You know, so you got the hydrolyzed proteins like that. That same exact same thing as protein. I remember uh, we got a because my wife can't eat anything with corn syrup because she has allergies, and I saw uh, a bottle of ketchup and it said no high fructose corn syrup. I was like, oh, good. So I went and bought that. And on the way to the restaurant, I turned it over. It did not have high fructose corn syrup. It had corn syrup. So I was like, what's the difference? Yep. You know, a concentrated version versus the regular version. So you have to read the labels. But if, if there's ingredients on the label, you don't know what it is. Trust me, it's what you don't want. And the way in the food business, and there's still some restaurants that do this. The only way to truly avoid that is to, is to cook from scratch from whole ingredients. Yep. That's the only way you're going to be able to avoid that. So it, if there, people cook the steak soup from the recipe, they're not going to be able to get exactly what they used to get. No. Especially you know, if, you're, if you're not going to use MSG. That's going to be part of it. Well, that, yeah, I'm sure the Nugget brand probably had some in it. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's about – so I always tell people if, if you want to use a base, buy the uh, – I think it's uh, better than gourmet. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a paste, and it says needs to be refrigerated. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's truer to what we used to use. For people that... But you also got to sear the meat. You don't brown it in a pan. Yeah. You you yeah. roast it in the oven until it's nice and yeah. caramelized. Let's not give away too many secrets. I'm going to start making <laughs> this soup in about two weeks. But you know what's really interesting is that people that... I, I cook with as little salt as possible here. And when we first started serving lunch here, oh, about 10 years ago, people, they complained that there wasn't it needed seasoning but what's interesting that only lasted a couple of years people when you give up it's like a smoker if you give up smoking it takes a little bit but your taste buds come back yeah i'm uh, funny you're some of the subject you bring up i'm i'm uh, my students know in the kitchen i hate salt there's no table salt allowed yeah. you won't find it. it they either gotta use kosher or c and i prefer c yeah. and then, then you gotta teach them that you know, a tablespoon of sea salt, you got to cut way back because it's just pure. Yeah. Uh, so I don't like the salt flavors, and I, I personally think our youth 
in our society is addicted to sodium. Right. Anybody can throw salt in food and say it tastes good. Right. To do it properly is how you meld the flavors together. Yep. And so for the, the home cooks at home and for the people, because there's so many more people cooking at home now than, than, than it has been probably since the 80s and 90s. The price of food has a lot to do with that. They're realizing they can't eat out as much as they used to. They're, they're discovering that. But I've got to tell you, all you list, viewers out there, when you start cooking, cook with less salt. If you're going to use salt, use it as close to the end of the process as possible. Because any salt you put at the very beginning of the process, the flavor goes away, but the sodium level stays, stays into the food. Yeah, I always tell them the salt to season three times. A little bit in the beginning, a little bit in the middle, and then yeah. before you serve. But yeah. if you, yeah, I told the class last night, if you put it all in in the beginning, you, you, no, you're, no, you're dead. No. I, you know, with other seasoning, especially true with chili. You know, it's just the, the chili powder that you put into chili that you put in the beginning tastes totally different from what it is an hour later, two hours later, three hours later. And it tastes like five different spices, but you just put it in at different times. But, you know, with salt, I've had people that, that would taste a soup or something I'm working on. And they say, that's terrible. There's no flavor. And I sprinkle just a little bit of salt at the very end. All of a sudden, everything just blossoms and blooms. But, yeah, it's so, so many. that's the problem with buying processed foods. All that salt is added at the very beginning of the process. Yep. And, it's just, and then the people salt it again afterwards. And it's no wonder we have a, a blood pressure uh, issue here in the United <laughs> States. Okay, so um, uh, people are interested. You mentioned classes a couple of times. So what, where do you teach classes, and how can the common person come and partake? Well, so I'm, I've been uh, Laura Liven, who owns the Culinary Center in Kansas City. Okay. Uh, she, ironically, we, we've been around each other for 45 years. So she used to be a server at Bristol when I was the chef Oh, there. really? Then she became a lawyer, and she was part of the lawyer group that helped us form creative restaurant management, which led to five people from Gilbert Robinson, including Paul Robinson, Dick May, and myself. Judy Williams, we all left to form our own company. Was that was that what, that was eighty nine? Yeah, we yeah we bought uh, all the specialty. So at, in the mid eighties, Gilbert Robinson split into two companies: the Hulahans Group and then Specialty Restaurants Plaza okay. Three, Bristol, Fedora. The only reason we didn't get Bristol is because when we did that deal, they wanted too much for Bristol. So. Okay, so before we get back and answer your question on that one, why did Gilbert Robinson sell to WR Grace? They they really didn't. The history of that after the flood, the Brush Creek flood, Gilbert Robinson was pretty much wiped out. Okay. uh, Because of all the plaza restaurants. It was, uh, I don't know who it was. I'm sure it was Ken Hill because he was president and um, went to uh, WR Grace, and WR Grace actually bailed Gilbert Robinson out and bought the company. If if that would have not happened, I would say that Gilbert Robinson would have probably never survived. Interesting. All right, let's go back to your classes. Oh, so anyways, I've been teaching there. She started a, she left the lawyer business, started the culinary center. One day she called me 22 years ago and said, hey, you want to do a smoking class? And uh, I've been teaching classes there for 22 years. I, I've been doing about, oh, I don't know, I'd say 125 classes. She has about 30 chefs or pastry chefs or drink mixology, uh, whatever you call those people. Okay. Mixers. Yeah, uh, mixologists. Yeah, so I, I typically do a knife skills class, but all my classes um, of cooking evolve around my history of Gilbert Robinson. Fedora recipes, like sure. last night I did a lobster risotto. That was all based off of Fedora. Okay. Two weeks I'm doing a legend, legendary cuisine or legendary uh, cuisine of the plaza, and it's going to feature okay. Plaza 3, Bristol, all the original stuff. Good. Well, you might want to tell the management over there to get ready. They're about ready to book up those classes. My classes almost sell out all the time. Yeah. I tell them, get in early. Well, good. So out of those classes, what would be a good starter for somebody to to take? Oh, I tell everybody. First class I did with her, I remember calling her the next day and said, you know what? We need to do a knife skills class for adults because nobody knows how to use it. I, I've been doing a knife skills class for 22 years every month on a Wednesday, and it's been sold out. Every single month. That's for a good one. We years. had an employee here that went to go take that class. After the first class, she came back. She goes, "Let me show you what you're doing wrong." It's like, all right, let's just let's just hit the brakes just a little bit. Go Every to a culinary, even, even at the college, <laughs> the first thing they do, and again, the kitchen yeah. is knife skills. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. It's all manual dexterity. If you can't do knife skills, you can't you can't create anything. All right. So um, online. One of the questions I got from Kelly and Carolyn both said the empanadas 
at Annie Santa Fe was absolutely amazing. Why? It was. Why? It's a great recipe. It's it's a. It's not quite like taco meat. It's a little bit moister, but we put a lot of uh, uh, grated cheddar in it okay. and the empanada dough. That yeah, we sold a ton of empanadas. Okay. So was it the filling or the dough that you think set? That I think apart? it's both. It was a sweet dough, but the fill. I could even you know. I, it wouldn't be known for me to go into Annie's check-in stuff, and I'd grab some chips and get a bowl of cold empanada filling. And, All right, so let's talk about the it. dough. Was it more like a brioche? Uh, it a, not quite. It's, it's a, not it's quite a, that sweet? It's a milk, milk sweet dough, Okay. Uh, very soft. You have to make it. You can refrigerate it, but it's best to make it, chill it, and we would make all the ant. We would make, when we made empanadas, we made 500 at a time because we'd go through so many. Bread. Right. So how did you do that from a restaurant standpoint? So you'd have those cold. So would you bake those to order? No, the, the Annie's empanada was, was deep fried. fried. Okay. Yep. No. Oh, how long would that take? Probably Only about not long. No, no, maybe five minutes. Any oh. longer, they'll blow apart. Oh, uh, do you ever go to Topeka? Yeah. Okay. There used to be a restaurant in Topeka called Twisters. Yeah. Uh, do you remember that? Yeah, we oh, had. Do a, you really? We had an Annie's. That we opened oh, sure. in Topeka in the big... Or uh, Westlake yeah. West Mall, yeah. Well, I, I met my wife in Topeka. Oh. We went to college at Washburn. So there's a place called Annie, or um, Twisters. And it's, um, they had, my best guess is probably, because obviously I wasn't a foodie back then, but it was, it was like a deep fried calzone was, was that. And so I, we're trying to, I've got several people trying to track down the original owners. They opened up because it was only open for a few years. They opened a couple of pizza places in Topeka and Lawrence. So, any viewers out there, if you have any information on Twisters in Topeka, uh, give me a call here at the bakery at Best Regards. I'd love to hear that. So, uh, any thoughts on that or what made that so different? The Twisters? Because that was, I, I've talked to a lot of people that said that was, it was like, almost like a deep fried calzone, but I don't know if it's that simple. Yeah, I would. I- It'd be interesting to see with dough because we played with that at Fedora with our pizza crust, and uh, okay. they came out beautiful, but the dough never cooked on the inside, so we know the pizza dough didn't work. Right. So I'm, I'm, yeah. When you're when you're deep frying it, it's a moisture thing. Uh, I would think the empanadas would be a good that dough would be a good dough to use for because it held up. We we specifically designed that for frying. Huh. So will you talk to me about the empanada dough, or do I have to go take a class? <laughs> No, I can I, I don't have the recipe memorized, no, but it no. was pretty basic. Right. Flour, some milk, okay. uh, a little bit of melted butter. Okay. Can we talk in a couple of days? Sure. All right. Do I like, just I just Do you I like just, cannolis? Uh yeah. All right. Well we'll we'll do a little trading. I here just after broke the show. that recipe down for a lady who took one of my classes. Okay. Like, oh I gotta get the recipe. So I told you earlier yeah. that I had to break the recipe down from making five hundred to okay. like making twelve. That's right. the hardest thing to do at recipes. Well good. All right. Well let's take a quick break here for a second. Okay, if you enjoyed this program, be sure to follow Best Regards Bakery and Cafe. The best way is to sign up for email newsletter at makethemsmile.com. That's our website, makethemsmile.com, for Best Regards Bakery and Cafe. Top left-hand corner, it'll say newsletters. If you sign up for the newsletters, you'll get up-to-date information on new products, specials, discounts that we have going on. And I got to tell you, October is National Cookie Month, which is a pretty big deal around here. We've been making high-end, huge gourmet cookies since uh, 2020, so we've been doing this for a while. We have, I think, last check, about 45 recipes for unique cookies and every single one is different we don't use a single base and add to it but first timers when they come here the number one question they ask us what's the best cookie we have and several years ago our cranberry orange was voted the best cookie in kansas so we kind of fell on that but we don't know so right now we are doing having a cookie battle and it's um jerry can you go get that poster off that wall so i can show people we have a cookie battle going on so we've selected our top eight cookies and we're having a cookie um, battles so right now today's the last day of the battle between the cranberry orange and the the um apple pie cookie so jared will move that over here to be able to see that and so we have brackets set up for the rest of the month so starting on monday tuesday wednesday will be the snickerdoodle against the uh, spiced apple pie inspired by taylor swift so
So we'll be able to do that. And so at the end of the month, we will be able to tell you what the best cookie we have at best regards. So here's what we're doing to make it easier to participate, strictly based on sales, whatever the most popular. This is like Chicago politics, money speaks. So what I'm doing is that when the cookie is in battle, I'm discounting both of those cookies by a dollar. At the very end of the month, when we have the winner, it will be buy one, get one free. So we're obviously losing money on that, but what we want to do is get the word out on how good our cookies actually are. So be able to do that. Then number our number one best-selling sandwich is currently the pastrami sandwich. If you go to if you go to make the, or go to um, best regards on Instagram or Facebook, you'll see a quick little video that shows how that sandwich is made, and you'll understand why it's the best-selling sandwich that we have. So be sure to uh, go to both of those. Best Regards Bakery and Cafe. We are at 119th and Glenwood, which is two blocks east of Metcalf. We're across the street from Cheesecake Factory and right next door to Johnny's. We have a huge patio and dining room, so it's bring your friends, come on over here, and we're open Monday through Friday, 8 o'clock to 5 o'clock, but the kitchen closes at 3. And the bonus is we're now open for dinner on Wednesday nights. So if getting out during the week is hard to do, come out and have dinner with us on Wednesday nights so we can talk food memories and you give me some leads on future stories. And if you know what somebody from one of the restaurants that we need to do, I'd, I'd love to visit with you. So um, let's get back to the, the topic at hand here, Richard. So... Annie Santa Fe, one of the nicknames back then was called Sex Mex. Yep. I've had people that didn't remember that until they heard that. And one of my um, employees, she goes, oh, my gosh, I forgot about that. Because it was a singles. It was basically turned into singles bar at night. And most people forget. But when I remember eating at, at one of the restaurants in the middle of the dining room. You're sitting on a parquet floor. And up on the wall, there's a disco booth. And that's, you know, do you know what time they shifted over from restaurant to the you, usually, depending on what it was, usually by nine o'clock at night, because okay. uh, all the hula hands in the seventy had disco floors and a right. discotheque. I mean, so Andy disc- Santa Fe did. Who else? Andy, Andy's Bannister had the biggest discotheque, <laughs> and I, I never wanted to be there with that because it gets crazy. But uh, I don't know who came up with that. But the, yeah, it was huge. So like on a Friday night in hula hands, where I worked in Milwaukee. You know, I pretty much vacate the restaurant because it gets right. Well, let me take a quick crazy. break. Hey, Jared, next time you see my wife disco dancing, feel free to spin the camera around for that during the Facebook Live. Sure, he's doing her version of disco dancing over here. All right, so you had all those. And so when I'm doing all my research, I get I hear conversations with people that, hey, you need to find this person. I, I've been told that Gilbert Robinson had a an official disco coordinator. Yes, they did. I can't remember her name. Do you name. remember her name? No. Okay. So I, somebody gave me her name, and I looked it up. She works in real estate here in Kansas City. But she, I, I tried to reach out via LinkedIn and, and Facebook. She's not replied back to me. She goes, who's this? I'm, I'm, I'll have to. There's got to be somebody left. I'll ask a friend of mine, Bruce okay. Campbell. He did a lot of the beverage stuff that, later that, on. That's got to be fascinating to talk to the disco coordinator of the Gilbert, Gilbert Robinson restaurant. I only remember her because I remember when I was doing Bannister, she, she was, <laughs> I should be careful. <laughs> she was interesting. Hey, the, stat, the statue of limitations is passed. Yeah. And we were all a bit more interesting in the that 70s than we are today. That was a wild group of people. Well, was it really? Yes. Maybe she doesn't want it. Well, I don't think it would hurt her real Andy's estate Bannister business. Annie's Bannister was probably one of the biggest discos that we had at Gilbert Oh, Robinson. really? Yeah. It, it, Annie's Bannister was first the first <laughs> million profit restaurant Gilbert Robinson ever oh, had. Oh, really? We and, and that's that, the and that's in the days when the enchilada platters were like a dollar ninety nine, two ninety nine. Three steakhouse. Oh yeah, that thing was a, a money maker. No kidding. No, they were both it, around the same we time. We had to send managers during the opening and shift because the. The wheel with tickets was so busy it would hang to the floor uh-huh. all day long. I mean, it would just it would just wear you out. Oh, have you seen the TV show The Bear? Nope. Oh, you haven't seen that yet. No. Nope. I know a lot of people in the food business. They say they refuse to. And, uh, and yeah, I don't watch much. I don't watch many things about food or restaurants. Well, on. Well, I finally talked my wife into seeing it, and she had PTSD on the first episode <laughs> when uh, because the, the the main character in there decided, well, we need to increase sales because you know. Long story short, his his brother passed away. He worked at a a Michelin star restaurant. And he came back to work in a dive in Chicago, and it's um. He goes, well, we're gonna do we're gonna do online ordering. So we did that, and he forgot um, to put a maximum limit on it. So right at, 
when they opened at 11 o'clock, 100 tickets come pouring out of the printer. And it's just anybody in the restaurant business understands that sound. You hear that oh, yeah. sound, it just I used to turn panic. it off at Bristol and take off the manager all the time when they would not think of Turn off know, the printer never, or turn off the order? Turn the printer off so it couldn't print order. <laughs> you know, it, front of house people, no okay. offense to front of house people, but they want to seat every seat. Nobody ever thinks about burying the kitchen. <laughs> and the worst thing right. to do is bury a kitchen. All right. For the viewers out there, Richard is a back of the house guy and not That's, a front of the house guy. Yep. <laughs> but you got to understand the front of the house is what pays the bills. If we don't, if we don't. Now if they don't if have we, the food. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> Well, when you're a small outfit like Best Regards, we're responsible for both. Yeah. You know, but simply turning off, I'm sure somebody's going to explain it to you, but simply turning off the printer doesn't really solve the problem. I was one of the first chefs to ever bring the kitchens out in the dining room. Bristol's was uh-huh. the first kitchen, and then Fedora had the, everything out there. Yeah, but we were, oh, really? I don't care what anybody says, the head chefs were in charge of the oh, flow no, of the no, restaurant. I, I understand. Uh, but it's. I'm sure you. That battle out. will go on forever. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> there there must be communication. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, communication is don't seat the whole restaurant at one time. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and I try to explain that to people, and they say, "Well, why do I have to wait 15 minutes? The whole dining room's empty." And I explain to people, "So okay, if you do this at five o'clock, you seat everybody at the same time. It's going to be hell all night long. You never recover from that. You got to set the state. You got the stage the stage up front." But you know, as consumers, we as consumers can be better consumers to help restaurants become successful. Because we're at the stage now that I'd probably say 30, what do you think, 30% of the restaurants that existed three years ago are gone? Oh, yeah. The, the ratio, I teach a, a hospitality at college for the students. And I tell them if 10 restaurants open today and a year later, usually only three are left. Yeah. And then two years later, only yeah. one is left. Yeah. I mean, the death ratio is huge. Yeah, and that's always been the case. But what's happening now is we're losing midterm and long-term restaurants. Yep. I mean, this is an absolute brutal market for any restaurants. And the, the whole point of this show is, you know, we talk about the good old days. And I think one of the, the greatest service that we've provided on the show is that the good old days, number one, are not gone forever. There are businesses out there that do this. I, I, I think we, at best regards, we employ a lot of this. And the whole point of this show is that when people come in, I get old timers that and they love my food and they'll say, this reminds me of my grandmother or my aunt used to make food, something like this. You know, but I always ask, I would ask them, I said, well, who do you miss? What restaurant do you miss? Or what dish do you miss from your mom or your grandma? And they share stories with me. And so that's how we've grown to where we are now over the last 15 years by hearing those stories. And so I decided that I wanted to expand that. So I buy this hour of time on KMZ Radio to, to open up and hear these stories from everybody else. And so it, it's part of it's just for fun. But part of it is I want to hear what some of these stories are that they miss because when these people pass, those go- those stories are gone forever. Yep. You know, I just talked about that last night with the Bristol Dome Room and the history behind it. Which, yeah. You know, what was cool at Gilbert Robinson is Joe Gilbert and, and Bill Gilbert and Paul Robinson, they want every employee to know the history. Yeah. Uh, you know, Bristol was probably one of the most uh, important moves in my career, but uh, miss the opening days of Fedora. Most people don't know that two weeks after Fedora opened, it was the uh, sixth-ranked restaurant in the United States. People like Wolfgang Puck was coming to Fedora to see what we were doing. And and that restaurant we built to just flex our culinary muscle. Well, two people that I've had on my show several times and that are among my two most favorite people in the entire world are Jim Eddy from Eddie's Wolfenstein, the Eddie's family, and Jasper. Yeah. And both of those have so much respect for the past and the history in this town, and they want to share it. They want to help other people. Yeah, Jasper's uh, a good friend of mine. I, was, I knew his father, but uh, he also gets involved with KCK's program, sure. and he comes out. He'll sometimes come out and do his mozzarella oh, yeah. class for the students. Yeah. Uh, actually, now uh, you said his name, I did one thing that I know at first he thought was not right but i did a thing called peanut butter and jelly wings and to this day he still talks about it oh, <laughs> so jad jasper uh, just jasper just sent a text in about that about that very thing when i first did those peanut butter and jelly wings everybody thought i was crazy <laughs> and the kids love them well that's funny uh, jasper said to say hi and he uh, wanted to mention that story 
And so that that's funny how small this town is. But but you know Jasper and Jim Eddie, they those two are helping me find people and stories to to share on the show more than anybody else in this town, because they they love this town. They don't like Jasper. So many restaurants here in Kansas City will not say a kind word about another restaurant because they think if they do, it'll be at their expense. Oh yeah. You know, and that's that's not the way it used to be. You know, Jim Eddie said that wasn't the way it was. You know, you helped each other. You know, it, it doesn't matter if you're an Italian restaurant or something like that. You weren't rivals and enemies. You know, it's just that that only working together can you raise the, the whole restaurant scene in Kansas City. And so that's, Absolutely. That's, that's part of my personal mission now is to, is to do that. So when I, when I decided late last year that I was going to do this radio show, one of the first people that I tried to reach out to was Carl DiCapo. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it haunts me to this day. I remember in December, I got a hold of, uh, I asked Jasper, and he goes, let me call him because it's, uh, he would be fantastic. And I wanted him to be my first guest. So I spoke to John David, his son. And it's John, uh, John David said, well, I'm, he caught COVID back in October, October, early November. And he's not doing well, so he can't do it right now. We well, passed away like two months ago. Yeah. He never recovered. And so those stories are gone forever. I, I'm John David. He'll be on the show, and we'll get his stories. But I would have loved to heard stories directly from from Carl DeCapo. You know the the things, the struggles he had in the early days. You know, starting the parade. You know, and every, he gave so much to this town. I wanted to do that. So, yeah, I think one of the things missing is you know when I came to Kansas City, I was a, a Hulahan chef in the seventies, and they they gave me Plaza Three when Plaza 3 was kind of struggling. And back then it was known, no Houlihan chef would ever run Plaza 3. So when I got it, it was a big, big to-do. Uh, but Joe Gilbert came into my kitchen every morning to just tell me something. Uh, he, he was big on the Bible, but he would get me brewer tickets because he knew I was from Wisconsin. But he, he did things that we don't do today anymore. I mean, Joe Gilbert was, you know, if we're going to give salsa and chips away at Annie Santa Fe, it better be the best salsa and chips you can do. Not just, oh, it's free, so yep. don't worry about the quality. He was always about the quality. He, he, he made us all become little Joes. I mean, he was about people. He, every morning he would tour the plaza, shake every employee's hand, and thank him. That's, have you ever met um, um, EB, uh, EB, Ed Holland for uh-huh. BBT Restaurant? He is like that. He keeps track of people's birthdays. He knows he knows their names, where they worked at. He greets people. I mean, he's for those of us that went to the EBT restaurant. That's he was EBT restaurant. Yeah, Joe Gilbert never missed anybody's any employee's birthday. He, I'm sure he had to have someone feeding him that information because oh, he yeah. he was fairly old that was back before then, computers. But, yeah, yeah, uh, but. When he left, I think Gilbert Robinson changed tremendously. Not not failing, but just changed. The, yeah. yeah, he he was Gilbert Robinson. Sure, you know, it, it, restaurants when they change owners, it's often they change. It's not it's not always about good or bad or better or worse or things like that, but it changes, and it maintain that culture, that environment is a challenge. Yep, and that's really the, I think the secret, the gift that Gilbert Robinson gave to the food business, and that's a lesson that we can all learn. Whether you're a one-off restaurant like we are, or you're a, a medium chain with five locations locally, is that you you need to identify what that culture is, what your values are, and you've got to get everybody marching in tune to the same. Yeah, Joe used to always tell me I was I was in my early twenties when I met him when he was in his late sixties, and he I always remember him saying. Just remember, Chef, good is not good enough to sell. And I tell my college students that every day they do something in retail, I say if it's not if it's good, it's not good enough to sell. Yeah. Because Joe Gilbert was like that. He was like, good is not good enough. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because it's nowadays, you know, I, I have a certain disdain for national chains just because it's it's personal because you don't go to San Francisco or Seattle or St. Louis to go eat at a national chain. You, know, you want to find something that captures that local spirit. But it, but it's Gilbert Robinson was different, and there's lessons for us small one-off restaurants that we need to learn from them. You know, we used to when we opened a restaurant, we used to train for five weeks. That's that doesn't happen no. today. I mean, well, we can't afford that. I yeah, mean, I the, the smaller restaurants. You That's can't why afford I always that. tell people in the '70s and early '80s, restaurant business was fun. Yeah, but but the big chains they can't afford not to do that. Yeah, it's it's yeah, a double-edged yeah, sword. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, they do it because they can't. If they don't do it, they're not going to have their identity. 
you know, but that's that that's the one advantage that I think a national chain or a big corporation can have, but so many of them no longer do. You know, so it's so it's so moving forward, Richard, if you can help me find some of these people like Carl DeCapo that have the stories that we can sit down and share with this. And, and it's just, I love that. Like, like Paul Robinson's not no longer here, but Jasper, when he was on my show, told me a funny story about him assisting Jasper on how to pick new chairs for his restaurant. Oh yeah. You know, so it, I'm not going to tell the story here. Go back to my podcast and look up the, the, the episode with Jasper, but it, it's, it's an hilarious story, you know, and it's just, I'll, I'll just tell you, um, he called them 90 minute ass chairs. And that makes a huge difference on the, on the success of the restaurant. And Jasper said it made a huge difference. You know, it increased his revenue uh, revenue by probably thirty percent. Oh, quick story about Bristol. Sure. The manager I did that with. Uh, I always complained how awful the coffee was. You know what he told me? He goes, "I don't want people staying drinking coffee. I want their ass <laughs> up, and I want to re- return that chair." And, and I'm convinced that that's why we had lousy coffee. And where was that at? Bristol Bar and Grill. <laughs> okay, that's funny. Uh, I understand that. That makes sense. I mean, you can't afford to have somebody sit at your table and miss two turns. Yeah. I mean, the, the restaurant business is still a business. You know, we have overhead to meet. With, there's a lot of expenses. And, and as a consumer, I'm very, I'm very aware of that. I try not to, to overstay my welcome. And if they're not busy, I don't worry about it. But I still make sure I tip the waitress so that, you know, that they're making the same amount of money as if they had gotten an additional turn on the table if I'm sitting there. I mean, that's, that's the little things we can do as consumers that I think will make a big difference. So what is there a, a specific dish or something that you helped make that I haven't asked about that people do ask you about? Oh, there's, uh, there's a ton of them. Um, I need you to be more specific. I remember at Bristow, <laughs> uh, we had an accident in the kitchen. And I tell this story in my class. I, was, I had our black and red fish seasoning up on the shelf delivery guy came in and i was reducing some cream and the the blackened seasoning found the cream i was like really ticked off and that day i took that cream made a fettuccine with it with shrimp and scallops and it like became the number one selling item and it was all an accident well that's uh, that works out well yeah i mean we all do that now i i do accidents on purpose when i do recipes so if i have a recipe let's just say i'm working on the the chai spice sugar cookie so I'll, when i do that I'll, I'll i'll bake off five different versions and i'll do one that i know should not work at all it violates the conventional wisdom of baking things like that but i'll do that and i'd say about one every seven or eight times that works out best i mean it, it's a practiced accident things that you know your intuition even though we've been in the business for for quite a while doing recipes still i still test things that i don't think will work because i don't know you don't know you don't have that. Yeah, one of my most favorite dishes that I love doing, I do a class with it. Uh, I was one of the few chefs to ever do true black pasta, which was taught to me by Mark Peel, the chef of Spago's. Okay. With the squid ink? Yep. Okay. Did it all the way. It was actually cuttlefish ink, so it's charcoal, but okay. uh, we, I did a jet black pasta on an orange plate with salmon with an avocado butter sauce. That, to this day, is still the one dish that people always talk about at the door that still gives it a little bit of a seafood taste doesn't it Uh uh-huh from from that well you know it's kind of funny so on our cookies and our decorating i don't i do not use black food coloring on our on our icing because it has such a there's so much of it in there that has a strong aftertaste i don't do that we use uh, actually bamboo charcoal Oh yeah, I was gonna say. I bet you use charcoal because yeah. at school I don't let the kids no. use paste. We every yeah. food coloring yeah. has to be natural. Yeah, yeah. And well, we can't charcoal's do all one, natural and all of some of the colors, but the black natural and and it's um. But but I, I won't show this. Okay, so uh, one of the people on um, on social media, Michelle, uh, bragged about the steak soup, but she said she actually loved the crackers. Oh, the oyster crackers. Now, now she said they were kind of a little bit bigger, almost like hard like yeah, lavash. Yeah, they were made by a company called Bent's, but they're, they're not the little oyster crackers. Okay. They were like a wafer. Okay. Uh, was it as hard as lavash or just a little yeah. bit? Like, was it, was, it? It was like a puff lavash. Okay. You could break them in half, and they, we served them Does warm. Does anybody make those anymore? I have. I, I looked them up because I love oyster crackers, right. but I haven't been able to find them. Yeah, I haven't either. We'd keep them in a chip drawer, yeah. so the servers would just get them themselves. Yeah. And, well, yeah, everybody went nuts over the oyster crackers. Oh, yeah. 
You know, because it, it, uh, we do a lot with scratch-made soups, and I tried to find a vendor that made larger soup crackers, oyster crackers, that we could season to do some things with, but you can't buy it. It's I'd not have to check my sale. files. It's there has to be a spec. We had a, we had a spec on everything at Gilbert Robinson. Yeah. But, yeah, that, that was that, – those were – I always thought they were kind of disgusting when I got there. I'm like, what are these? And everybody's like, no, no, you can't take those off the menu. Yeah. So they stayed for a long time. Well, that's good. So can you? Uh, we only have a few minutes left here. Now, technically, I could go long, but I want to keep it down to the, the one hour. Can you think of anything else that you want to bring up that I haven't asked you about? They want classes, then come see you over there at the Overland Park Culinary Center. Yeah. Uh, no, it's sad uh, that... You know, as time goes on, you know, Mr. Gilbert's gone, Bill Gilbert's gone. But if people remember Gilbert Robinson, um, you know, it's it's the history. Uh, my biggest thing that I want to try to remind people, I just met somebody who works for the new Hands group. And I talked about, you know, we trained about the his In training, we had to learn about the restaurant, like the dome Who owns that now? Um I don't know. It's it's called the Hulahans Restaurant Group. Is, is it's it by the itself? Old, it's the old. They own Bristow and Jay right. Gilberts. That's not part so, of the Landry Group or something like that, is it? I couldn't even don't know. tell you. Okay. Once right. we split up, they kind of went their own way. But okay. The history of the Dome Room, I think everybody in that restaurant should know. That thing came from Bristow, England. Paul Robinson had it taken down piece by piece. Oh, really? Shipped it to Bristow, and it was put back up piece by piece. And the guy who actually did it, engraved his initials and in, in some of the stained glass. Oh, that's amazing. The dome room at Bristol on the Plaza is what made that restaurant famous. Okay. I like to say it was the food, but everybody remembers the dome room. Well, yeah, it, it's a little bit of all of it, though. I mean, that, oh, yeah. true magic is when everything comes together. You know, you can, uh, I, I often tell people good is easy, great is extremely difficult and takes great planning. Yeah, that's why go, Joe Gilbert always said good yeah. is not good enough. Yeah. Yeah, and that's kind of, I, I, I like that. It's because uh, I've always told people good is easy, but that's the it. biggest thing. In my career, I, I I love the most is never thought about it back then, but now that I'm almost seventy, is all the important, famous rock star people that I've cooked for or met. That's always kind of fun. My students are interested by that. So, who was yours? The most famous yeah. person was probably. Uh, Ronald Reagan, when we opened Bristol, I have the blueprints of Bristol, Devon out in D.C. next to the White House, so I got to do a lot of political things. But okay. the most impressive person I've ever cooked for was Charlton Heston. Oh, really? Oh, I would love to. He came to Bristol the year they made the Motherlode movie at, uh, in was Missouri. Was he intimidating? He, when he shook my hand, it was like putting my hand in the kitchen. And Bristol was actually closed when he came in, and the assistant manager told me where he closed, and I was looking what the cooks do and i said you all know who that is and we're all looking at it. i said that's moses <laughs> so i reopened the kitchen yeah so him and his oh that's amazing group of people got oh, yeah. to eat but yeah he he probably was the most impressive man or person i've ever met just overwhelming i mean all i saw was moses yeah well you know i i think i'm going to make this a standard question for my my guests because this come up a couple of times i remember Dwayne doherty he, he was on my show a few months ago, and his most impressive uh, meeting with a celebrity was with Merle Haggard. And it was just, it was an interesting story. So go back and look up the podcast for that and hear the, and listen to the Merle Haggard story. I mean, that, that was amazing. Yeah, I got lucky enough to hook up a long time ago. I used to feed ZZ Top whenever they came to town. So I got to hang out with them and stuff. So I used to know Dusty and Frank and Billy. Back when their beers were this short, right? Was they that were still, you know, I don't ever remember them having short beards. <laughs> Either they were fake in the beginning, yeah. and now they're not. Yeah. But always still my favorite rock group. Good. Well, that's um, so that'll be your one lasting impact on this show. Is I'm going to make that a standard question for my guests. Cool. All right. So moving forward, um, I'd like to work with you on a few things. I have a couple questions on on a couple recipes, but I really want you. To, I, I, I'd appreciate your help helping me find some people whose stories deserve to be told. On that one, there, there's some still out there. Oh, there, oh, there's tons of great people and stories out there to, to be told. All right, so for those of you out there, you viewers and then listeners to the podcast, be sure to come by and see us here at Best Regards Bakery and Cafe. We're at 119th and Glenwood and Overland Park. 
which is two blocks east of Metcalf. We're across from Cheesecake Factory next door to Johnny's. We're open every Saturday, 8 to 2, Monday through, the, Monday through Friday, 8 to 5. But the kitchen, uh, we're staying open straight through till 7 o'clock on Wednesday nights. Like a lot of the restaurants that we talk about here on the show, Sharon and I are always here to visit with you, share stories, and answer questions. And lastly, don't forget that all of our shows are available worldwide on, pod, on all podcast platforms. You know we have listeners in over 20 countries to this show? Awesome. And I've never advertised it. That's just people, expats from Kansas City that want to reconnect with their roots and stories that have found the show. Well, thank you, Richard. I appreciate having you here. Thanks for inviting me. That, that it's always was, fun to talk about that, the good days. That was a lot of fun. I think um, I think I'm going to have you back again sometime soon. I'll be able to do. We that. can talk all day about Gilbert Robinson. Oh, oh, I'll, without a doubt. Did you know ever meet uh, Gus Reedy? No. Nope. Okay. All right. We'll talk about that then. All right. If you're watching live, be sure to go over and listen to KCMO Talk Radio live with Jasper's Kitchen. Uh, Jasper has a radio show. It's the longest-running radio uh, food show. It's been on for 17 years. You catch that at 103.7 and 710 a.m. One of the segments he's doing today is about Best Regards Bakery and Cafe and also about Lydia's. So he's hitting the two hot spots in Kansas City. Thank you, everybody. See you next week at 10 o'clock.